Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. We are back with another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks. So I'm joined today here with some of my esteemed administrative colleagues to talk about multi-tiered systems of support. So uh, we're going to get into that. We're going to give an introduction today in what will become probably the first part of multiple parts of really embracing this as a core element of how we support students district-wide. So before we describe what MTSS is and how it fits into our school district, let's take a moment to introduce ourselves, please. Hi, everyone. It's Alyssa Bellardino, the Pre-K to 6 Humanities Supervisor. Hello, this is Frank Santora, your proud superintendent here in Roxbury. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Zegar. I'm the assistant principal at Lincoln Roosevelt. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me today. Um, what everyone doesn't know is we've been trying to coordinate this conversation for a while now. Um, and so I'm glad we're able to, to finally sit down together to, to frame out an introduction of this topic. Um, because what people probably don't realize is that multi-tiered systems of support is really um, a framework that we already utilize in a lot of ways to support students. Um, so we're going to describe that because one of the things that I have as a goal for today's conversation is this kind of becomes the first step in establishing a common vocabulary and a common language um, for how we work to support students in any number of ways, which we're going to get into district-wide at all grade levels. So that's where we'll start. What is it? So when we say MTSS or multi-tiered systems of support, what's that mean in a generalized sense? Yeah, so I, I think we should just break down the word really fast first, right? So like we have multi-level systems, right? Or multi-tiered systems. So um, there's three tiers generally when we think about how we support students um, outside of, of other areas, though they can be in conjunction with something like a 504 and IEP, but I don't want to get into that right now. Um, but I think the, the last two in that acronym are really important, which are systems of support, which means there's a whole bunch of different things that happen. And the, the focus here is on supporting the learners within the classroom, going from all learners, all right, to specific groupings and then individual students of need. I think it's important, too, when we talk about a multi-tiered system of support to understand that. There are various tiers, as Dr. Zegar just mentioned, but as a youngster progresses in needing more support, the tiers of support continue. So they build upon one another. So you have a tier one level, which is universally provided. But as a youngster demonstrates a need for further support, they also get a tier two intervention while still receiving tier one, and they progress accordingly. And, and so I think what's important as we emphasize the word tier, which of course is a critical component, you know, you have a, the vast majority of students really exist in tier one. Um, and so their supports are what we would consider to be the general program that every student is offered. And so when we say program, there's a lot of elements to that. There's behavioral, there's academic, there's social, there's emotional, right? This is not just an academic structure, um, but the vast majority of students really do um, operate in tier one. And tier two kind of offers that first level of more specific support for student or group of students, small groups of students. And tier three is kind of um, that more intensified, typically individualized level of support. Go ahead, Chris, you wanted to jump in there, go ahead. Yeah, just, uh, I think it's it's good for us to kind of define, you know, the philosophy behind why, why we're saying what we're doing. We're using terms like tier one, tier two, tier three. But in reality, it just breaks down to the fact that, and I think as a parent, you know this, every student is different your son or daughter is different than the other ones and they have different needs. They, they have different ways they excel. And the assumption that like a, students come in and they're all the same and they should be expected to do this in the exact same way 
is is silly because it's not really what life is like in any way. And in a lot of ways, um, you know, the, this we should support to be able to find the strengths, you know, and and that students excel in support those, and then also support where students are struggling. And they may be struggling in, in different ways. It may be very small, and they may not really see too much of a difference in a regular class, so it doesn't mean all hands on deck, but they could still use those types of supports. And I think that's that's the important thing, that we understand that students come in and, and they all have different strengths and, and different needs. Uh, so you, you kind of were going in the exact direction I was thinking there, which is really we need to establish that as our world and our our you know culture the people around us every, you know everything continues to evolve and change so does education and the idea of well this is not what education looked like when i was a kid or when my parents are kids that is a true statement uh, and the reason for that is because everything has changed um you know the number one influencer of course is the proliferation of technology right the world our students are growing up in is very different mm -hmm. and that of course has led to changes and so just a generation ago when we were all students, um, there was a really still a very specific one-size-fits-all model. You sat in rows, you listened to the teacher, you all got the same test, mm -hmm. you all got the same homework, you all, like everything pretty much looked the same with very, very few exceptions. Now, of course, I'm looking back at my experience as a student, but if you said, what were those exceptions? I'd be like, mm, I don't know. Like none of them stood out to me. None of them are really memorable, uh, which suggests to me that they were few and far between and you've... You fit the mold that was cast for everyone in all four of these areas, behaviorally, socially, emotionally, uh, academically. Um, and that was the expectation. That was the norm. And so one of the things I hope that we can break down today is that kind of long-held belief that education still looks the same. You know, kind of the notion like, why can't education look like it did when we were kids? Because the world doesn't look like it did when we were kids, right? And so we can either continue to hold fast to the idea that our kids need to grow up in the world we did or come to the realization and understanding that that's not realistic and we need to adjust and adapt. And so what I'm happy to kind of be a part of and report as not only someone who works in the school district, but someone who lives in the school district is we don't have that approach. We are recognizing and understanding that the children are grow up in a more complex world than ever before. And it is our responsibility to not only adapt and adjust to that so that every student can meet with the highest level of success possible in all of these areas, um, but partner with parents in doing that, right? And on that journey, right? It, everyone's kind of working together. So um, I'm glad you you took us there, Chris, because every student is different. Every student is unique and deserves love and attention and supports that fit who they are as a learner and as a young person growing. Dr. Saip, I think you brought up a really um, great point about that high quality teaching and what that looks like in the classroom. Um, our teachers within the district look at that whole child and they really do, you know, of course they want to have those clear learning objectives and really engaging and authentic lessons, but they also, you know, ensure that there's positive reinforcement. They make sure that students feel a part of that community within their classroom. And all of those components are so important for the student to be successful academically, socially, behaviorally, and so on. Yeah, I would say that it's really important to underscore the uh, the need for emotional wellness and well-being because one who's regulated emotionally is more available for instruction and for learning. So when we talk about a tiered system of support, we have to make sure that we're thinking about those essential components to strong emotional wellness and well-being in the classroom, cultivating a positive classroom culture and, and environment in order to lend to better outcomes for students. So let so. What does that look like? So, you know, as we refer to classrooms, there's, you know, you get this picture again, you go back to your own experience. 
Um, and as a parent, if I weren't an educator, I wouldn't know what that looks like. I would still think a classroom looks like it looked when I was a kid. Uh, and that was a chalkboard in the front of the room with a teacher standing <laughs> within <laughs> arm's distance of it, um, kind of turned at a 45 degree angle so they could see the board and see the students simultaneously to make sure no one was misbehaving. Um, and the kids were in rows. Nobody really talked to each other. That's not what classrooms look like at all. So let's talk about the environment because as Dr. Santora just mentioned, that emotional readiness, you know, how do we help students feel safe, supported, and ready to learn, right? That's kind of the first step in the environment's an important piece of that. And that's what allows teachers to really structure a learning environment that is accessible for all students. So let's talk about some of the work. And Chris, you even kind of led some of that a couple of years ago with redesigning and examining what our classroom spaces look like to really meet the needs of what the language we used at the time, which I still kind of chuckle at now because we still use it, is 21st century learner. You know, we're about well into it. We're about, <laughs> it's about a quarter of the way there. Um, so we probably should, you know, examine that because that's the present. It's not the future. So uh, talk about that work and how that supports what we're about to get into, which is how we address those tiers emotionally, socially, behaviorally, academically. Mm -hmm. So I think um, when we think about a, a learner and the, the different types of, of ways we construct a classroom and the way we construct instruction is to you know, break down what are the types of values, skills, and content that we want that individual to be able to excel at. So, you know, we talk about 30 years ago, there's certain types of skills that probably were more prominent um, than they are today that were necessary. Today, it's things like creativity, the ability to be flexible, the ability to communicate, the ability to be a leader, the ability to be able to be compassionate, um, as well as the content information, the basic skills. So you have to create environments that are conducive to that, which means you're gonna to have to create environments that allow for a lot of student dialogue and collaboration, a lot of kind of creating knowledge together and the ability to be flexible, which is why in a lot of cases, there's a lot of emotional work that works with that. How do you deal with being able to navigate a difficult situation with a, with a peer? And that's an extraordinarily important skill today. Um, you know, and as we, we look at things like um, the construction of, of more complex algorithms that now for some strange reason, we just have retagged AI and it seems more exciting now. Um, you know, those types of skills that used to be the most dominant skills 30 or 40 years ago are done probably more efficiently and faster by a computer. And what is really, you know, important and what we have to attach to as a educational institution is to find the things that make you know humans distinct and how they work because we don't work like computers, and to be able to you know support and and motivate the type of skills that that are going to make students successful and thrive in the world they're coming into. Dr. Z, I think you mentioned something um, that I wanted to just point out, which is that emotional connection. And so when you think about the classrooms across Roxbury, what I love the most when I visit them is the relationship that the students have with one another and what they have with their teacher. And so I think that's so important to ensure that there's that positive culture, which is that every voice is heard. Students are explicitly taught how to regulate their emotions, knowing that all of these feelings are normal, right? There are so many times in life when you're going to feel you know, angry or happy and so on. And so teaching students of it's okay to have these feelings. It's how you respond, teaching them explicitly how to problem solve. Um, I think all of those skills, like you said, are so important for those life skills and really speak to the portrait of a graduate. Yeah, and I would think that 
big piece of that is, you know, success now in the workforce requires a great deal of interpersonal dialogue and collaboration. So we talk about explicitly teaching these skills, but we also need to focus on how we teach them in the context of the curricula. Because the curricula has changed, obviously, since we were children, we mm-hmm. talked about that. But flexibility in terms of cognitive flexibility, decision-making, shared understanding, are all things that we teach and reinforce, not only explicitly, but also through the context of the curriculum. So I'm glad you you tied all that together because this is a great opportunity to mention, you know, um, Dr. Santoro, when he arrived here in the school district, worked collaboratively with community members, um, teachers, as well as administration to, and board of education members to examine our district goals and really kind of cemented our first goal, which is appropriately number one, because it really should be the most important, which is student achievement and pref- professional development. How do we work to support staff uh, district-wide so that we can ensure that every youngster has the best possible learning experience that they can? And the language of that goal talks specifically to, and here's how it reads, enhance an active, inclusive, and multifaceted learning experience that maximizes each student's potential and empowers individual achievement. And the language there really resonates and echoes what the goals of a multi-tiered system of support are, which is meeting every learner where they are, helping them um, work towards their fullest potential. Um, and so it's so closely connected with, as Alyssa mentioned, the, our portrait of the graduate, as well as our support for, for professional development. I think it is uh, critical kind of in our conversation here that we move to the, the people, right? So you talk about interpersonal skills. It's one of the things Dr. Centaur just mentioned um, as an important piece of what an, um, an appropriate learning experience is in 2023 as we get ready to move to 2024. So that's not just about the connection between the teacher and the children in the classroom. Uh, That's about all of the support systems. And so again, as we break down that notion of what a classroom looks like, it is no longer just a teacher and a room full of youngsters. There are other folks involved. Um, Administration, um, there are specialists, there are specially qualified individuals who work to support um, not only students, but staff. So let's talk about how the the adults in the room have an impact on students far beyond just the teacher. Of course, I would say the teacher probably has some of the most profound impact because they're with the children so frequently, and they're the ones that really establish those connections, but there are a lot of support structures. So let's talk about who are the other people that are involved in a multi-tiered system of support, even at tier one, supporting all students. What Who are those people? What do they look like? Let's talk about some of the administrative roles and responsibilities as well as some of our specialists. We have some really amazingly qualified individuals in a variety of capacities here in the district, and we're very fortunate to have them. So how do all of those people play a role in the success of not only the implementation of an MTSS approach, but also in the, the, that, that goal for attaining uh, potential for every kid? Yeah, I'm going to jump in. On, um, so, you know, teachers have, you know, uh, over 20 students in, in their classrooms and a lot of cases are looking at how to best support um, groupings of students. And I think it's important that, you know, people at home understands that there's consultations on numerous students uh, throughout the course of the, of the year where a, a teacher will reach out and um, there'll be a, a committee that that looks at a student. And maybe it's a small meeting. Maybe it, it, we continue to chart the progress of a student. Maybe, you know, it becomes something where the parents get a little bit more involved um, but it, it depends on the needs of the situation. So in that meeting, we'll have people who are, you know, administration. Um, so that would be a, a building administrator, maybe a supervisor on that on that committee. We'll have a, an educational specialist, most likely somebody who is trained in in specific aspects of um, inclusive education. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, differentiation, things of that nature. 
Um, we'll have a a member, most likely of the, who has some specific um, specialties, generally uh, who's maybe a behavioralist if it's a behavior situation, uh, where we're trying to get a student to be able to kind of move on task, to kind of work on specific things for growth. Maybe it's an academic specialist, somebody who works in reading or something along those lines. And then also a guidance counselor, a lot of times, uh, somebody who is there to be able to uh, talk about the specific role of, of working through the social systems of the school, uh, coupled with the classroom teacher, because obviously they should be there. Um, and these consultations happen to look for where the supports are needed and to look at specific different you know, steps that students can take and that teachers can take uh, to be able to make sure that they're a little bit more successful. And then we chart that. Yeah, I think it's really, you bring up a good point. You know, for those of you who don't know, I have a background in pupil services or student support services. So often I oversaw behaviorists, school psychologists, school social workers. I was a school psychologist many years ago. And some of the meetings Dr. Zeger just described are more commonly known as intervention and referral services meetings mm -hmm. where groups of professionals are getting together to talk about a particular student who's demonstrating a need for further support. So I sat on those committees as a former school psychologist. And when we would talk about uh, students' behavioral needs, the first question I would ask regarding student um, or classroom management pertained to student voice and choice, meaning what were the opportunities for student voice in the classroom and student choice, and how did they lend themselves to classroom rules and expectations? And that was the starting point for consultative service. We're very lucky here in Roxbury to be supported by a whole host of very talented behaviorists, school psychologists, learning consultants, reading specialists, all individuals who can lend a very nuanced voice to the discussion regarding student need. So those are the kinds of supports that are available for our students at each tier. So the, um, you know, as we're talking about how all those, uh, those people come together to support the different tiers, I know that, you know, you all have been very involved in your capacities here in the district in supporting that mentality. And so I think that's kind of an important piece to, to talk about here, which is really in a, a realignment of priorities. And I don't mean a realignment as in a departure from previously held priorities. I think it is an embracing of the idea that additional priorities continue to emerge and deserve the same amount of attention as prior priorities, right? And so that's one of the things I, that I believe, and I've said this on this podcast as well as many other times before, it's what makes being an educator um, such a complicated, complex, yet rewarding profession. Um, it continues to grow in the expectations of um, what people are responsible for doing and how they respond to the needs of students. Um, the approach for how students are cared for is is very different, but it's different because uh, education as an industry has worked to evolve to more, um, I'm going to say appropriately, although that may not be the best word, that might be the, may not be the most appropriate word, um, more um, specifically, I guess is a better word, embrace the idea that every youngster is in fact different um, and they deserve to be treated as such and handled as such within a framework that meets um, the responsibilities and expectations of a school district. And so when we talk about um, tiered systems of support, one of the things that I think is also important for people to realize is the state of New Jersey has been having this conversation, New Jersey Department of Education, who I definitely think that isn't generally um, referenced with celebratory language frequently. Um, and there are times where that deserves um, to be altered. And this is one of them, the New Jersey tiered systems of support structure that the mm -hmm. that has been a part of the language is is really well done. Uh, there's a lot of resources on their website that are not only appropriate for schools to use, but are appropriate for parents to refer to in case maybe they're struggling. I know when I was a principal in particular, parents would say, <clears throat> excuse me, 
they would paint a picture of what they're seeing at home. And it was so vastly different than what we were seeing at school. So it really made it hard for us to talk the same language in terms of how student could be supported. But there are resources out there. And I know Alyssa has a couple, we're going to share some more. But one of the pieces that they talk about is that universal screening mm -hmm. um, language. And I know that's important. And I want to go there because that is something that we are working to really con make a concrete part of our program, right? There's really four steps to evaluating and implementing a multi-tiered system approach, which is kind of a universal screener. How do we collect information about students' needs and successes? How do we respond to that? And how do we monitor that response and then improve upon it, right? Mm -hmm. When you respond, that's not it. Game's not over. Um, we need to continue to monitor and improve, right? There's always a next mm -hmm. step. There's always opportunity to grow. Um, so maybe, Alyssa, you want to talk a little bit about some of the work you've done to secure a grant for the school district and what that what the next steps are for that. Because I know you've worked very closely with a number of your colleagues uh, to really get that thing off the ground at the elementary level. Absolutely. So when you think about that universal screening, what that looks like, um, universal screening is a common tool that are given to all students um, where you're able to identify students that may need additional assistance, intervention, or even enrichment. And so the screening process happens a few times a year, um, and we just look at students across the board and see, you know, what supports are needed and how we go about helping them. One of the things that I had connected with the state is um, the New Jersey Department of Ed partnered with Rutgers University, and they had come out with a grant for early intervention reading. And so I am very excited to say we are one of five districts in New Jersey to um, receive this grant. And what we will do with the state and Rutgers over the course of the next three years is they will support us in looking at our um, instruction, our RTI models, and um, see where we have, uh, I guess, some, you could say some gaps in our, our system, um, looking at where we could coach teachers to provide the best possible instruction in early intervention reading to offer us training um, to really look at, do we have literacy gaps? Where are they? Where do we go from here? And really just analyzing data and having ongoing conversations about data-based decisions. So that's the key point. We have data and we need to act on it. And how do we respond to the needs that our students have? Um, so it is definitely a three-year process, but we're continuing to enhance our practices. We're continuing to enhance our procedures with MTSS. Um, and like I said, I'm excited to see where it goes with the state and how our teachers and our students are responding to some of the supports that we have. All right. So I, as you mentioned, the teachers responding, one of the pieces that I think is a great time for us to put in place is as teachers collect that information, what do we do with it? Well, you talked about one of the things, and I mentioned it before, we utilize it to determine strategies and plans to support students. But we don't keep it a secret. We share that information with parents because they're yeah. partners in this process. And so one of the things that I think is, you know, a part of the goal for this discussion as it continues and for this episode is getting information out there about what multi-tier system support is, but also reinforcing the idea and the notion that parents are a partner in this process. So as we discussed previously, what do those meetings look like? Who are the people in the room that help um, identify strategies and supports for students as they move into different tiers when necessary? The parents are a part of that process. And mm -hmm. the reason I think it's appropriate to mention at this time that that is a partnership. It is not one side of the table versus the other side, right? The school district doesn't sit on one side and the parent on the other. And if, if that's the feeling people have, I want us to start to work to debunk that. And I know mm -hmm. that Dr. Sintor, you've done a lot of work already since you've arrived here to resolve instances where people may feel that way, mm -hmm. not to suggest that people, uh, you know, I'm not placing 
a judgment on people's feelings. They're certainly entitled to feel the way they feel based on the experiences they've had. But um, if nothing else, I want people to know as a school district, we want to partner with parents to make the best decisions possible for students. And while that may not always mean immediate agreement, <clears throat> um, it's, a, it's a conversation. It's an opportunity for us to share ideas, to share strategies um, about how we as a school district plan to support students. Um, ideas about how parents are part of that process at home. I mean, one of the things that I, I think often comes into the conversation is like, well, who knows the kid best? The answer is everybody in their capacity with which they interact with that student. I would say that student's friends know them best as a friend and as a peer, right? So there's lots of people that interact with with students who have really great perspectives about, um, you know, about where they where their strengths are and how how we can continue to grow. So. Um, one of those pieces that Rutgers also supports and has become really a bit more um, a part of educational conversations is positive behavioral supports in schools. Um, I know because I worked with Rutgers years ago in a previous school district. And so, Alyssa, you've shared uh, a really great resource, the PBSI, PBIS Playbook. Um, it's a great website. We're going to link it um, on the website here so people can kind of see because while it's really framed towards schools, there's a lot of really tiered specific language that can be used at home. Um, for little things like, you know, if, as we talk about classroom design, there's a lot of work that goes into designing a learning space at home, mm -hmm. right? right? I know that I used to be able to do work with music on in my house when I was doing homework, like I'm sitting on the edge of the bed. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work for everybody. Some kids need to sit at the dining room table. It needs to be quiet, right? So, you know, there are a lot of strategies that we use in school that also can be used at home. Um, so I think that's an important piece of the conversation. But you also mentioned data. So let's kind of wrap up with that idea of how how do we collect data? How do we share that um, how do we help translate it for parents, right? I think maybe that's a great place to start because we've gotten into a pattern of ending these podcasts with strategies and ideas about how parents can take what we talk about, utilize it in the home. <clears throat> I don't know. I'm having such a hard time. Today. Getting um, choked up. It's important time. I know. Yeah. I, for, for real. I'm getting very emotional. Uh, so let's talk about that. We collect data. How do we translate that into a way that is consumable and understandable by parents who may not be educators? Because I think that's probably a point of frustration when we use edu jargon. We use our language and not everyone is familiar with it. Yeah. I think part of it comes down to an explanation of what kinds of data we're using. So it's important that we look at summative data, which would be the end, right, of something, but also formative, performance-based data, things that are occurring in the moment and how we're assessing a student demonstrating a skill. I've always found in my work that describing the kinds of tasks presented to students to parents is illustrative of what we're uh, doing and what we're aiming to do. It also helps bridge the gap on what parents can do at home to work with their children. So I think that's just a really important piece. And if the data that we're collecting isn't easily explainable to the large majority of individuals, it signals to us that maybe we're collecting the wrong kinds of data, right? So I think that's really important. I think we, we try to have conversations with parents. And we, I do like our internal diagnostic tools. And, you know, as we grow them and things like that, I think it's important to be able to explain to a parent, like, here's a skill to work on, because that's English and, you know, something that's translatable and somebody right. can understand it. Mm -hmm. I think some of the biggest some of the biggest headaches I think we we deal with in, in how to best support a kid is is that this you know the SLA scores will come home and it's this number yep. that you know it's six ninety eight I don't know what that is you know what's seven forty two oh eight fifteen you know these are numbers that aren't easily digestible mm -hmm. and they're not really great at explaining exactly how to help so I think in some ways parents then in turn feel like they're like they're falling you know like this is a, a something where they they have no control they don't know how to read these things so I think a lot of the conversations focus around what I like to call like slicing small data, 
you can take pictures of, of what a kid's doing in, mm-hmm. in, in small areas, mm-hmm. behaviorally, academically, mm-hmm. socially. Mm-hmm. And you can really kind of have a really, you know, robust conversation on that. And, and that becomes, you know, a wealth of information about that student mm-hmm. uh, that can have, you can have a discussion with the parent about. And I think it's something that you can really build on. Um, and I, I, you know, to go back to Dr. Santoro's part, you know, you have the summative data, which is, which is really great. It's great for planning. But, you know, those, those, those pieces of information in the moment is kind of really where we live in a lot of cases where, you know, we can make specific changes midstream to make sure that we get better results. I think one of the things that um, both Dr. Santor and Dr. Zegar had mentioned that I want to point out is just that idea of using assessment results or data to set goals, right? To know specifically what does that student need in the moment and how do we address it? So that piece I think is really important to make sure that we are tracking those goals, looking at those goals, seeing if they're achieved and setting new goals to keep moving forward to best support the learner. I think that's a kind of a great way to bring us to the conclusion of this conversation. Um, and so kind of in summary here, you have tier one, which is, you know, the goal is to provide a high quality learning experience for every youngster um, based on curricular goals, instructional practices that we know are well documented um, and provide, but have an integrated continuum of support services, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, any youngster who needs a little bit more of a specific support system is, you know, kind of tier two. Those are supplemental supports. Those are individualized interventions. Those are often things that are provided to small groups of students. Um, and tier three becomes that more intensive individualized support for a student. Notice in that explanation, there isn't the real delineation of general education, special education, because it all kind of works together. And it really isn't um, that even that approach is not one size fits all. It's not if this, then that. Right. We look mm-hmm. at each student as a unique uh, individual and really work to, to collect data. And the truth is there are a lot of supports that students can be afforded and familial partners can be granted <clears throat> regardless of whether a student is um, general education, special education, whether they have an IEP of 504. Right. Um, that language is not exclusionary. All right. That it is a very fluid conversation that often gets misunderstood because if I don't have this thing, I can't have this other thing. And so we'll end with this idea that um, every student is eligible for supports that meet their needs um, and we can be flexible and fluid. It is when those supports, uh, the necessity for those supports become regular, consistent, that we really want to document those in a plan so we can ensure that everyone's a part of the same conversation. We gather that data input. So what I hope to do is have a next conversation that's a little bit more specific on tier two and tier three. Um, And so keep your eye out for that. But if you're a parent at home wondering, well, what's that mean for me? How can I utilize these ideas at home to support my, my child who is unique and special to me? I would say that the three best pieces of advice we can give you, which aren't specific to any of the four domains here, academic, social, emotional, um, or behavioral, are celebrate effort. Celebrate your your child doing their very best at all times. Um, Recognize that just like us, they are human. Um, You know, we do great at some things. We struggle at other things. So as, you know, Alyssa just said, set goals, have clear expectations, and then highlight and celebrate successes, recognizing that every day is not, every moment is not a success. There are times to get better, but when those successes are there, really take the moment to celebrate those and then revisit the goals and set a new goal. Don't be done with it. Continue to grow and continue to get better. Uh, just to build on that really quickly, I, I can't stress enough, reach out to your classroom teacher mm-hmm. 
and set up a time to have a conversation and one that's like early in the game too. Like if you see something at home or, or you noticed a, a bit of struggle, it may not show up in the classroom for two more months. And at that point in time, then it's, then it becomes a real struggle. And, you know, I, my feeling is always a, a short phone call where you can discuss back and forth, ask questions will help out immensely in developing a partnership and, and getting some real, you know, targeted kind of steps moving forward than a thousand emails. Yep, that phone call is really critical because you you, you know so much gets lost in translation mm-hmm. when we send long long messages. So I think that's a great pointer. Any other closing thoughts before uh, we get out of here? I would just say that uh, it's been great to have this discussion, but know this is uh, the first of many that we're going to be having throughout the district. As Dr. Site mentioned earlier, we want to establish a common understanding and vocabulary regarding this process. So more will come, not only for teachers but also for parents through the superintendent coffees that I host and other events throughout the district, we are very much looking to partner with our parents regarding uh, what's best for their students. And that's going to look different for every student, but know this is the beginning of a very long process and dialogue together. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.